So thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, I've had a wonderful couple of days meeting the division of neonatology and all the really dedicated staff and research interests. Uh, Jim's vision, which has been incredible to listen to and see in action. And so I really appreciate the time to share my research with you today. You know, I, I know not everybody here is in neonatology, so I was thinking about it, and my whole interest in fatty acids stemmed from someone who is not in neonatology. So for the young residents, and when you're thinking about research and talking to everybody around you, really make sure you're talking even outside of your own specialty, because I think that sometimes catalyzes really nice discussions, innovations, applying principles that normally aren't applied to your, to your specialty, and this is what kind of invigorated me to move from epidemiology to more translational, to get away from defining the problem, but actually trying to see what I could do at the bedside to make some changes. So the person I'm talking about is an adult gastroenterologist at Beth Israel who looked at fatty acid relationships and, and outcomes in cystic fibrosis. And there's a lot of parallels to a population in cystic fibrosis and then what we see in neonatology. And I think others that are in the audience in their own specialty, maybe you have some interest in lipids. And as you think about some of the principles I'm about to discuss, we'd love to discuss with you sort of the relationships that we can draw together. It, uh, the, the, the driving force is the really the impression and, and the constant amazement about how fatty acid and lipids are truly pleiotropic across many different systems and within neonatology across development. And we're all kind of developmental biologists at heart. Now I do have uh, some conflicts to our potential conflicts and disclosures. And all of these relationships, except one next J, that's sort of a biosystems ones, but all of these relationships are really talking to industry out there and, and discussing with them how we can improve lipid and fatty acid delivery. Hopefully I'll, I'll convince you that I do think it's important that we figure out this problem in neonatology. And so building those relationships with industry, because I'm not gonna make those lipids, they are. But can I inform them and tell them kind of what I think needs to be made or how we can uh, deliver that? So that includes our primary lipid provider uh, for the entire medical population, for Xenia's Kabi, and then other relationships such as Alcara uh, Sensilio, Laurent, Prolacta, and Abbott. So today I'd like to go over what we see as far as fatty acids and fetal development briefly on that point, but then illustrate the changes we do see in the postnatal fatty acid profiles that happens pretty rapidly within the first week, and then illustrate the biologic rationale of lipids and fatty acids. Why should we care? And then define the challenges that I'm sort of seeing and trying to figure out those strategies in parenteral and enteral nutrition. The, the kind of more you dive deep into it, you realize there's always more questions than answers. And, and I think this is definitely the case. So fatty acids and fetal development and postnatal changes after preterm delivery. So there's this whole concept of biomagnification that during pregnancy, especially during the third trimester, there's selective transfer of fatty acids across the placenta with dedicated mechanisms to do so, dedicated transporters, and to shuttle those fatty acids across to the fetus, really at a time where you want to continue brain development and eye development. And it's very curious, when studies have been done to really label these fatty acids and, and look at which ones are transferring, again, they're very selective to DHA and A, and one point that I'm hoping to get across too is that it's not just a DHA story. So 
I'm assuming we all know what we're talking about, but fish oils and docohexanoic acid, but it's not gonna just be a single story of DHA. Thinking about AA and the balance is critical in a developing infant and our developing babies. I was just in Colorado talking in, in about placental biology of fatty acid transport, and I loved it when the lab there told me that when they do quantify that DHA and AA transfer, it's actually even more so for AA, solidifying some of the theories that you'll hear about and why that balance is so important. But it's selective for these two fatty acids. The other factor, the other important thing to remember and where it's critical for our preterm infants is when you look at the graph, what's in orange is actually the deposition as well as the utilization in the different tissue compartments. And even though we know brain and eyes are important, especially for long-term outcome, it's actually just a sliver of where it's being stored and utilized and where that's happening is largely in the fat stores and the adipose tissues. And so this makes sense when I show you the postnatal curves, there's a rapid shift and change in fatty acids. And that's because our babies don't have that third, that luxury of that third trimester to build those adipose stores. We all know that they don't have those adipose stores. So they're immediately reliant on the nutritional delivery that we're gonna provide them. And they're gonna shift pretty rapidly, specifically on what we provide, how and when. So when I was with the colleague I first talked about and said, you know, I know nutrition's important, I keep defining that it's important, but where are the missing elements? Because we know that the outcomes are related to neonatal growth overall, but even if you look at those studies and look at those infants that we think actually grew well, they're still at 30, 40% risk of neurocognitive impairments. So we're still missing something. And what I think we're missing is sort of a targeted immunonutrient approach. And this is where I think fatty acids may play a role. So the first study is, well, what, what do we know about fatty acids? What do they do after birth? And I had no idea initially. So this was the first study where I uh, prospectively enrolled in a biorepository and then looked back into my biorepository for all infants less than 30 weeks of gestation, where I had blood samples weekly across the first postnatal month and looked at their whole blood fatty acid levels by GC mass spec. But I didn't know what my normals were, so we first did look at 10 term infants who had blood drawn for other reasons at day zero. So even my babies at less than 30 weeks, at that birth, that day of birth, they had mole percents that were almost equivalent to that at term of about seven to a seven and a half mole percent. Now, when I was first looking at numbers like this, they were just numbers to me. I was just you know, going through the data and getting my relationships. But again, talking to my colleagues, like, holy cow, seven and a half mole percent. Those are levels that you just don't ever see again in your lifetime. If I were to do a GC mass spec on all of us here, we're sitting at maybe one mole percent. Maybe if you do a lot of fish, taking your supplements, one and a half mole percent. But to be at seven and seven and a half mole percent is really a, a very high level. And again, just emphasizing the importance of that exposure during fetal development. But what happens to our preterm infants where they should have been exposed to this level throughout the rest of the remaining gestation if they had remained in utero, you see that actually they fall. And they fall pretty quickly by the first week of life to almost about half of where they were. And then they continue to sort of settle out and go into the steady state, but they never recover. And that difference between that solid blue line and that dotted line is the deficit. 
the postnatal deficit of DHA that they go into. If you look at arachidonic acid, again, fairly similar to levels at term, but also fall, not as much as the DHA as far as the percent of the initial starting level, but they fall about 30, 40%. And then you look at linoleic acid, and it almost triples within that first week. So within a week, and this actually happens around day 45 if I were to do it on a daily basis, but within a week, our current nutritional strategies and what we provide completely reverses upside down the absolute levels and the relationships they are to each other that they would have seen in utero. Now, often we have our babies that do go through a postnatal change and adaptation, and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's necessary. Uh, thinking of like maybe sicu thyroid as an example of that. Replacement is not necessarily always a good idea. And so how do we know that this actually is clinically meaningful? So I have some follow-up data to this, but I also wanted to go through a kind of a review of the literature about what we know in fetal development and early neonatal development with fatty acids. So what is the biological rationale? Well, we get all excited about it, especially this is much more advanced in the adult literature, but it's the fatty acids that, that uh, bind it and give you that phospholipid tails and part of your cell membrane. And it's the branches that are caused by those double bonds and those kinks that allow some separation, some fluidity along that cell membrane so they're not stacked so close together and rigid and that fluidity allows those lipid and protein interactions to therefore carry out their signaling to the nucleus and then let the nucleus signal what they need to um, from that point and then definitely uh, immunity and inflammation is important but again what impressed me at the beginning is realizing not only for brain and eye how important it is for other developmental uh, origins and processes and other, other organs that we see. So we know they're important for cell health for, for many of these reasons already. And here's a little of the discussion just showing that schematic of needing those double bonds to allow for that fluidity and why saturated lipids aren't so great for you. So let's start on the brain. So there's a factor, a neuroprotectin D1, that's actually directly metabolized from DHA. A lot of these, what we call terminal mediators of fatty acids, were described by Charlie Surhan at Brigham and Women's Hospital, an anesthesiologist there. And so he's described the resolvins, the lipoxins, and here the neuroprotectin D1. But I also want to talk about the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is very important in brain development. It's uh, in DHA through the activation of the MAP kinase pathway increases levels of BDNF. We can't do a direct measure of brain levels of our babies, but this is a Cornell lab that looked at baboons and looked at the total fatty acid levels and here the plasma DHA levels and how they correlated with brain DHA levels. And I see this with our other animals as well. It's a pretty good relationship and a linear relationship. So fairly safe to, to say that those changes you're seeing systemically are probably gonna be reflected at a tissue level. I bring that up because we have studies where that BDNF factor is lower in preterm infants compared to term infants. And then there's animal studies showing that if you have an omega-3 deprived diet, so right graph, right bar, you'll come down on that BDNF protein. So if you think about those changes I showed you in our whole blood of our preterm infants, being down on that DHA, progressively and consistently down over the first postnatal month, 
and through that period already low in BDNF and now not having one of the important substrates to actually continue to build and make BDNF. So they are undergoing a chronic deprivation of DHA and likely a chronic deprivation of BDNF. This study on the right did show, which is the good news, is the ability to recover with a appropriate replacement therapy. Like I said, though, we have to think about balance moving forward. DHA is not the only story. This is a graph of cerebral cortex levels of fatty acids in infants who had died from non-neurological diseases um, early in their life and looking at the relationship between arachidonic acid and um, docosahexaenoic acid. And you see in squares there, if I can call it the math is in squares, that that's the AA level. And the AA level is higher in the brain than DHA until about the late preterm age at 35, 36 weeks. It's not till after that that you start to see the surge in the DHA in the cerebral cortex. So it's finding the right balance at the right time. Across the street from me, Lois Smith, an ophthalmologist, used a mouse model and studied these principles and mechanisms in three different ways. Changed the maternal diet of, uh, of mice, the mothers, so that her breast milk, it was reflected in breast milk, continued to feed them and then exposed them to a hyperoxy exposure for retinopathy of prematurity. Gave the DHA or AA directly to the mouse pups or thirdly, took the uh, terminal mediators of resolvins and lipoxins, and each of these strategies showed on the right that there was a decrease in that vasoobliteration and the abnormal vascularization processes <coughs> that we see in retinopathy of prematurity. In the original cohort data that I showed you those changes, this is what we saw for chronic lung disease that persistence of an oxygen requirement out to 36 weeks postnatal age, that those that had the risk of developing chronic lung disease had lower DHA levels. They all went through that kind of change, but even at the steady state, those that were lower than their peers had a higher risk of BPD, such that every one unit change of DHA was a, was a two and a half fold increase in the risk of lung disease. So as to move that further, and again, you know, understanding that any clinical study, it's, it's largely association. You can do the best you can with modeling and adjusting for all of those factors, but wanted to go back to the lab and figure out, can I get more mechanistic, that this is an important mechanism for potentially lung disease. And so if I can't correct the fatty acids immediately, can I give the terminal mediators that may be important in these biological processes? So if we look at the N6 pathway there on your left, there's a rachidonic acid in blue. It gives rise to something called lipoxin A4. If you look at the N3 pathway, you have EPA giving resolvin E1, and then you have DHA that gives resolvin D series and also protectin D1, which is a neuro, another name for the neuroprotectin I, I discussed earlier. So we decided, okay, let's give lipoxin and let's give resolvin. And this was in collaboration with a lab at the Forsyth Dental Institute that was giving these mediators for periodontal um, gum disease. And so they guided me a little bit on the products and on the dosing. So I went to the lab with some help of colleagues and trying to translate what we consider uh, an animal model, kind of well-established in hyperoxia. 
uh, where you take your mouse pups immediately at birth, you randomize them to either a hyperoxy environment or a normal room air environment. So that alone will give the picture on the right, which is no change in magnification, where that exposure to elevated oxygen gives you these dilated alveoli, which they call alveolar simplification. The walls, the cell walls of the alveoli are thick compared to what we see on the left in room air. And so we had a resolving group, a lipoxin group, and a combined group. Well, first with the resolving group, I was kind of disappointed first looking at the microscope. The alveoli are still big. Very, you still have the simplification. But if you look closely, those septal walls are actually quite thin. So it was doing something, but not a complete resolution of what we see for the BPD features. When we applied the lipoxin, we saw a little bit of improvement in both. A little bit of improvement in the alveoli number, as well as also seeing those thin cell walls. And then we did a combination of both, it almost looked indistinguishable from a normal room air. So despite 10 days of being in a hyperoxy environment, we were able to sort of change the inflammatory processes that lead to the cell wall thickness. And we were able to also see some alveolar change. So this is when I realized it's not an inflammation story. And I kind of was going into it thinking it was gonna be a lot about inflammation. But in our babies where things are constantly changing after birth, this was also participating in an alveologenesis and direct lung development. And the lipoxin and the arachidonic acid series was most important in mediating that effect. Uh, which is great about academic medicine, is just down the hall and some pathologists, the whole lab was also doing a bunch of organogenesis work on the mediators. They were looking at the EAT pathway, but also from arachidonic acid and showing similar effects. So there did seem to be a very direct relationship to what we were seeing clinically and the implication and at least an implied mechanism by how that might be affecting lung development. In the gut, this is actually mostly from adults. And this is where the R01 and I went into intestinal health is we don't know that much about how they implicate or how they help in intestinal development. But adults' fats and lipids are very important in modulating your microbiome. They inhibit your TLR4 receptors were important in the pathogenesis of necrotizing enterocolitis. They inhibit the signaling, as I much told you, of uh, inflammatory markers. And finally, it's been shown to be helpful in PPAR regulation, which is important in cell differentiation and proliferation. Two other labs have looked at the uh, fatty acids and its role in intestinal health. So if you look at the left, this is a rat model of necrotizing enterocolitis, where on the far right is their control. So in their hypoxia-induced model, of necrotizing enterocolitis, about 50% of those infants or those pups went on to necrotizing enterocolitis. And to the left, variations of fatty acids dropped that down, but especially that of DHA. On the right, a more recent study in 2015 looking at fetal cells, human fetal intestinal cells, not changed in their cell line, derived from human tissue, and cell cultured them and incubated them with different fatty acids, and then did an inflammatory stimuli to see the intestinal cell response. And what you see with palmitic acid, which is the 16-O, the most predominant fatty acid in breast milk and formula, when you give a human fetal cell line that stimulus with palmitic acid, it'll have a rise in their inflammatory markers. 
and then to the right, changes in IL-1 or NF-kappa-beta, depending on the different fatty acids. Most of the effect you're seeing here is either from DHA alone or a combined AA-DHA. And that's the thing that, you know, often what we don't understand is when we talk, if you were to compare this to an adult, it wouldn't be as high. So the same lab has done those fetal to adult comparisons. So the fetus is considered to be very hyperinflammatory, but it's not so much that their stimulus for this hyperinflammation is altered in some way leading to the excessiveness of it. What it is is the absence of the, of the terminators. It's the absence of the anti-inflammatory that can't squell that, that large inflammatory response. And this is where fatty acids may be important as it starts to arm you with those anti-inflammatory mechanisms that they don't have and they definitely don't have uh, subsequent. Lastly, back to the paper showing those changes with chronic lung disease, also a significance with arachidonic acid in the risk of nosocomial sepsis. Every one unit drop of that arachidonic acid postnatally was associated with a 40% increase in nosocomial sepsis. So there seems to be these early mechanisms across the body, across these organ systems, where there may be very important, either in tamponading that inflammation or actually a direct organogenesis role. Now you should always be a little suspicious when anyone tries to sell you something that does everything. Um, you want things that are selective, you want things that seem to make sense, but I think what we're seeing here, not that I think it'll cure everything, but I think what we're seeing here is again the timing. And to remember that our babies are reliant on these processes and probably common processes along these organs that they're immediately deprived of. So I think of it in these three phases where that first phase was that early critical period where they rapidly drop, but we have a failure of strategies to bring that back to levels they should have been exposed to. So what happens is during that long course, convalescent course in the NICU, they remain low and they remain low during a time that they continue to actively develop, where the organs continue to develop, where their immune system continues to be educated, but without these substrates. And then finally, at the end of their course, or even long term, we're seeing the outcomes of those phase A and phase B shifts that remain unaddressed by our current management. So how do we start thinking about solving this problem? And what are things that, you know, we're looking at the lab, but what we can say now that we can do. And so when we think of those strategies, we have to think of both parenteral and enteral, because as you know, most of our babies are reliant on parenteral nutrition, at least for the first couple of weeks for our extremely low birth weight infants. And then as we gradually in, you know, increase their enteral fees, they come off their parenteral nutrition, but then they go on to their enteral phase. And so we have to think about how we start to bridge both of those gaps. With parenteral nutrition, our primary mainstay still is intralipid. Now we provide lipids in general for very important reasons. The intralipid provides the essential fatty acids of uh, lenolenic acid and lenoleic acid so that you can, in a healthy adult, metabolize down to DHA, EPA, and AA. They're an important source of gluconeogenesis. If you give a balanced diet of appropriate lipids and proteins, you're not gonna be reliant on your glucose fluids, you're not gonna run into hyperglycemia. And it's a, it still remains our most energy-packed nutrition. 
So that still is our rationale and why we still look at intralipid and intralipid still being our only FDA approved product. But in the NICU, we always do it with some trepidation and always some concern because we do know it gives us hypertriglyceridemia. People worry about the, the role of pulmonary vascular resistance or altered immune function and it has phytosterols and other things. But what I'm going to say going forward is surprisingly to me, yes, there's trade-offs, but there's some unexpected trade-offs, I believe, as well with the newer generation's fish oil emulsions that I did not go into expecting to see. So if we look at our current lipid emulsions, our intralipid is 100% sorobene oil, so the one I just described and what we use predominantly, which gives us all of our precursors, mainly LA, ALA, and no DHA and AA. And as you move to the right, you see that SMOF, S is for soybean oil, M is for MCT, O is for olive oil, F is for fish oil. So it's a nice blend, and it's a 15% fish oil. And then if you go all the way to the right, that's your omega-vin, which is 100% fish oil. I'm not going to speak to it as much, but omega-vin has had a lot of pediatric press because of my surgical colleague across the street who has used it for the treatment of PN-associated liver disease and has taken kids off transplant lists and transitioned them to enteral feeds and off their PN with the use of high-dose omega-vin. So there is a role potentially for even 100% fish oil. But the interlipid is reliant on this presumption that we can metabolize those early precursors all the way down to DHA, EPA, AA, and the preterm infant cannot. So what do we know what happens when we do give these fish oil products? So over in Europe, and uh, they seem to have their, they're a little more advanced thinking about these different lipid emulsions and being able to do them in trials and studies. So in 2011, now all these studies are somewhat low and they're overall N, but about 50, most of them will be. But they took less than 1,250 babies and they gave either fish oil, so that first is, is like a smoth oil, and then, or a soybean dominant oil. This one is clenolaic, so it's a little bit like all intralipid. It does have some MCT, but basically a fish oil to a no fish oil product. And these are the fatty acid levels that they saw. And amazingly, there's not much shift on where you want your bang to be, where you want that shift to be. So first, if we look at panel B, it doesn't really bring down that early DHA deficit. Even though you're giving 15%, they still fall at seven days. So I don't know. Maybe we won't ever be able to replicate what the placenta does and match that, but they weren't able to prevent it at this dose. Now, their resting baseline dose or their resting state at day seven into day 14 was higher, but if you look at the axis, it's really going from 2.5 to 2.8. I'm not sure that's actually a clinical and meaningful change in DHA levels. Now, if you look at A, a, the uh, panel A, the arachidonic acid goes lower. And this is where we're starting to appreciate that there's going to be a trade-off and we'll have to decide either how to minimize these trade-offs or not enter this trade-off. And that is as you push DHA and you improve those levels, your body is going to go back and reduce arachidonic acid. Now, not a bad deal when you're talking about older kids or you're talking about adults where you want to suppress perhaps the uh, pro-inflammatory processes that come <coughs> off that N6 pathway, 
But when you're looking at a preterm infant who I described, it's the predominant one in the brain for a while, important in lung alveologenesis, important for the protection of sepsis, I don't think we, and growth, which I did not present, but there's data out there on just overall growth, I don't think entering a strategy that continues to drive down arachidonic acid would be the appropriate strategy. The other unknown in this is that fish oil is not just DHA, it's not just AA, it actually has a lot of EPA, and our babies have very low EPA levels, and it substantially increases when you introduce fish oil. We don't know what that means in our preterm population. Again, a lot of good rationale for using EPA in cardiovascular disease and other situations, but not the same mechanisms we want to replicate in a preterm infant that does have already some bleeding diatheses. So we're introducing new things, new issues to this trade-off, and it's not going to be just simple in replacing DHA or AA, and I, and I wish it were. Um, so this was one of the first studies in collaboration at Baylor uh, where we looked at preterm piglets, and I wanted to understand this shift, but I also wanted to understand the metabolic consequences, but also the host response consequences. If your nutrition is what gives you that nutritional priming, and it's going to lead either to a resilience or a vulnerability to disease once you get that second hit. So I wanted to understand that transition. So this was a preterm piglet model. We gave different lipid emulsions, but basically did that N6 to N3 transition, mainly all intralipid or SMOF or omegabin, and looked at the fatty acid profiles. Well, if there's one thing that's true, no matter, and it's, it's these levels and the levels I just showed you, and I'm gonna show you a recent clinical study after this, they all say the same thing. So if there's one principle that I'm just convinced exists, it's these shifts when you give these different products. So your linoleic acid, high with intralipid, but comes down oh, as you progress into N3. So that may be a good thing, bringing down that total LA. The red dotted line is the birth level of the preterm piglet. So you can see where the shift is. So it's still higher than at birth, but less so for the N3s than the N6. You look at arachidonic acid, you see that as you push those N3s, you come down on total arachidonic acid. And as you give fish oil, as expect, you get these rapid increases in DHA. And then as just discussed, you get these rapid increases in EPA. This happens no matter what model, mouse, pig, human. And then with that, you change the ratio. Interlipid actually overall probably maintains a pretty decent N6, N3 ratio compared to these newer fish oil lipid emulsions. So this study just came out. I saw this just as I was preparing for this. And I like the studies that actually give you the levels so you can then make some educated guesses about where you need to go with the next step. But it just solidified everything all over again that there's no effect on the early DHA deficit, which is panel C there. You get a lower early AA and a lower AA to DHA ratios, that's panel A and D, and then the high EPA in panel B. So again, now at this point, we should just know what happens with fish oil emulsions to our babies when we get them. This was their outcome measure. Now they powered to ROP. Uh, so they're not gonna really have the evidence to say that the others are either fine or not fine, uh, but they showed no difference in the ROP. But what they did, See, again, they were low, but it just makes me want to pause and think about that translation of using fish oil or smog for our NICUs. 
classic neonatology, not FDA approved yet, there's tons of units out there that are now using routinely SMOF for their maintenance lipid emulsions, and I'm not sure that's a great idea. Here you look at neck, 10% versus three, with higher in the SMOF, and then you look at sepsis, 46% versus 30%. Small numbers may not need anything, mean anything, but I think because what we know with those shifts in fatty acid profiles, we have to take pause and really evaluate this. Why those sepsis numbers concerned me in the study that I was telling you with the piglets and those shifts in the fatty acids, my host response challenge was giving them LPS. And so when I looked at it, the first is I looked at the metabolic profile, and it's fascinating. Again, diet, anyone ever tells you that nutrition or diet may not matter, you see pretty early, this was a 10-day model, that they cluster, this is the metabolomic profile across all those pathways, that they cluster very nicely based on the lipid emulsion that they received. So there is definitely that early priming, and you shift them. What we don't know yet and, and trying to go through the data is where's that shift good or where's that shift bad? But the other thing that we're seeing as we sort out the metabolomic data is those piglets who did die from those LPS challenge, they were all in the fish oil groups except one. So not a lot of deaths, but clinically worried about the fact that those deaths that occurred in this piglet host response challenge were those piglets that had the fatty acid profiles um, and the fish oil uh, uh, exposure. Now looking deeper into that, we definitely saw an increase in lactate with those deaths, but I think we see that in a dying process. But one thing I'm looking into, which other labs have also discussed, is this higher energy utilization when given fish oil or N3 fatty acids, which may be good at a base, but if you're not replacing appropriately and keeping that energy balance, if you then ask them to sustain the host to sustain a second hit, they're gonna go into energy depletion and cell death. And that's what I think might be going on here. So akin to, like you, if you ever ask me to run a marathon, which I'll never do, but if you ask me to and I do it, and I'm exhausted, bent over, taking deep breaths, and you're like, great, do it again. I'm not gonna be able to do it again. I just gave everything I had, increasing utilization, everything I needed to do to accommodate for this N3 effusion. I'm not gonna be able to withstand that second hit. Now again, I don't wanna then now shift and be all negative against fish oils. There's other things that we do know in the interlipid, such as these metabolites, the 910 dihomes that I clearly see elevated in tissue as well as plasma. And in the pink there you see where it can go awry in a healthy human host, basically immune dysfunction and paralysis. So there's the balance. So where do we go from here in understanding where's that sweet spot, especially for our preterm infants? And the sort of yin-yang of Elsie Pufas, I like this because it talked about very nicely sort of all the potential negatives here, all the others not circled, or all the potential positives. But there's these other things that we gotta be careful, especially in our preterm infant. So in summary, and so looking forward, so if you guys in the clinics, even in the PICU, say, and are discussing these newer lipid emulsions and when to use them, I tried to go through a series of logic about if I were asked at my home base, how would I approach this? And so 
Let's look at the N6 to N3. If we look at total energy and growth, they actually both seem to be fine. I think it's a wash here when you look at nutrition and growth data. One is not necessarily better than the other, at least from the data we have so far. But I discussed, interlipid gives you a really high LA, it drops your AA, it drops your DHA. But I also discussed how the fish oils minimize that rise in LA, but dramatically reduces your AA, dramatically increases your EPA, and yes, you have a bit of a higher resting state of DHA, it doesn't reduce that DHA deficit. So you're just trading one set of issues for another. What the fish oil has is they have a lot of vitamin E, whereas interlipids, which potentially may be good, I don't know, uh, the interlipid has a lot of phytosterols, which is thought to be bad. I mentioned the vitamin E because one thing we have to also understand is I'm studying a, a product, I'm studying a package, right, a lipid emulsion. It's not just fatty acids in there. And so Doug Byrne, who was my collaborator out at Baylor, he had his own preterm piglet model and, and looked at the PN-associated liver disease based on these emulsions, and you get it with intralipid and you don't with SMOF or Omegavin. He matched the vitamin E content in intralipid, redid the experiment, and did not see any liver injury. So is this all mediated by vitamin E, or is it actually mediated by some uh, interaction? So the first step, if you're at the bedside, is what's your indication? You know, why are you trying to decide, you know, how you're using your lipid emulsion? Well, maintenance therapy is different from therapeutic therapy. If you have traumatic brain injury, if you have established PN-associated liver disease, you're on the transplant list. I think there's really good compelling data that those acute short-term exposures actually may be very helpful in these fish oil or even omegavin groups. Um, but for a maintenance strategy for our preterm infants who's going to be on it for a couple of weeks, I'm not sure we know what either set of trade-offs are going to do, and I think you're just replacing one set of problems for another set of problems. So when you look at those problem sets, what are your goals? What's the goal? Well, if you want to be preventative in a non-surgical patient to prevent cholestasis or PNALD, it's important to recognize that most preterm infants with short courses at two weeks don't get this. It's those infants that stay on for a while and when you linger and you're not feeding the baby, feed the baby and get the patient off PN or intralipid and you probably won't run into this problem a whole lot. I hardly ever see it at the BI. But also, if you want to actually prevent cholestasis and you have a PN-associated liver or, and prevent PNALD in a surgical infant, this I think gets gray. I think now we're in the gray zone. Because if you're going to be on prolonged intralipid greater than two weeks, so an example of that would be if you have a preterm infant who's 28, 29 weeks, 1,500 grams, who has duodenal atresia, and your surgeons are not going to repair until they reach some weight, 2,500 grams. So you're just, you know, having them progress along on PN and, and lipids, intralipids. In that case, you may want to consider not using intralipid because you will increase the risk substantially for PN-associated liver disease. But the only thing that's been studied is omegavin and intralipid restriction, and they both work. SMOF has not been studied, but there is a current clinical trial that um, I'm not sure we have the patients, our neonatal community, to wait for, but there is a trial to answer that very specific question. Our approach in these infants is to do um, lipid, uh, interlipid restriction. 
And then if there's a development of pee-in-associated liver disease with cholestasis, then they're put on the um, Omegavin protocol at Boston Children's Hospital. So finally, what about our next divide? What about preventing BPD in ROP? I didn't show you a few other European studies, again, small in number, that looked at the prevention of these aspects. Well, I showed you the ROP, but there's also been some in BPD. Small trials, not enough information, um, so can't really be recommended in that situation. If the other thing you're trying to do is alter and maintain birth levels of fatty acids, which I was going into this whole arena to do, this whole area, I, I've showed you, you don't do neither well. So those are our options, and I think a decision-making strategy. How about the enteral? Just a few slides on that. We've been replacing DHA and AA in formulas for a very long time now, like 2002. Has it changed outcomes at all? No, not at all. When you look at long-term outcomes, it hasn't changed anything. I propose it hasn't changed anything, especially for preterm infants, because we're starting right over here, and we haven't fixed the precursor problem. So that's number one is we've already got an indeficit, and we can feed them all we want afterwards, and it's not going to change. But the other thing I think we're not taking into account is the fact that they can't hydrolyze what you give them. This has been demonstrated back in the 80s in Lebenthal, where he looked at pancreatic function in term infants and preterm infants and showed that they don't have adult levels or even adequate levels of lipase to properly fully hydrolyze triglycerides and fats until well after six months. So I think much what we give them sort of ends up in the diapers, and I showed that in our preterm infant cohort, where I looked at balance studies, I measured every, all the fats and fatty acids going in and everything that was left in the diaper. I did 24-hour collections three days in a row, um, and showed that as you increase in carbon length, you reduce your ability to hydrolyze and metabolize those fats. So I think it's been a little bit of an empty mandate it's the understanding of the importance of these fatty acids, which is the great first step, but then to add it, not think about the metabolic or developmental restrictions and properly utilizing that addition, I think is where we have failed and need to think of other strategies, and that's just another way to say that. Um, so how is that gonna happen? Well, folks have talked about maternal supplementation. Could that bridge us and get us to higher levels? Um, I think that might help us in the enteral phase, but not in that early parenteral phase because we don't feed them. Mom could have the, the best breast milk, but we give it in such small quantities over days that I don't think it, it's gonna matter. Um, those disclosures I talked about, you know, can structured lipids, pre-emulsified lipids, using enzyme technologies, can all of those strategies be employed to help minimize these deficits and changes? I'd like to end with this which again remains very humbling, and I think there were some issues with this study, but a recent study looked at DHA supplementation, it was an enteral supplementation, for the reduction of bronchopulmonary dysplasia in preterm infants. And what they saw was, in fact, an increase in BPD, or BPD or death, in the DHA group versus the control group. So I was disappointed seeing this because I thought, great, you know, this is going to set back the whole push of lipids and fatty acids years. But then I said, you know what, Just use it to explain. This is what, you know, the research is showing. This could have potentially been anticipated and expected. You're giving a single agent. I've talked to you about sort of what happens with just a DHA or a fish oil rich. 
the fatty acid profile changes, the arachidonic acid profile changes, and the, and the importance of the balance of those in preventing morbidity as well as BPD. So this is an example of a potential single strategy that does not work and may potentially be harmful. And in fact, they came to that conclusion in their discussion and related it back to the parenteral lipid emulsion. So another reason, another quote to take pause to just adopt fish oils routinely is that providing these emulsions are providing the same DHA dose that they provided in their supplementary strategy. And then their results raise the questions of the safety of the strategy and that we still need to figure out levels, balance, and appropriately meet their metabolic uh, capabilities. So I'm gonna end there a few minutes. So there's um, you know, things we need to think about that I've already mentioned out loud before we solve this problem, but I hope I've shown you that fatty acids are important in mediating important biologic processes that our baby needs. We've gotta provide it early. We gotta think across the course of their life, if not just in the NICU, but during the first week, uh, year, but it's definitely a balance. Um, and we got to be careful with these single fatty acid strategies. So I would like to acknowledge all my collaborators and thank you for your attention. Any questions? Thank you, Kevin. Uh, I believe we have a microphone available if anybody has a question. Uh, I actually have one to start off with. Um, one of the things we see rarely in the NICU is somebody who just seems to have difficulty tolerating interlipid at all. You get yeah. a half a gram or something along those lines, you get triglycerides of five, 600, and you're, you're trying to balance giving the essential fatty acids intermittently. With the three different forms that we have now with SMOP, interlipid, and OmegaVent, do either or any one of yeah. those show any improvement to that situation? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. There's been two studies that have tried to look at other lipid classes. Um, and so for the triglyceride, also if you go below, here it may be a little higher tolerance, but if you go below two and a half grams per kilo per day, you don't get as much trouble with the triglycerides, but if you go to three or three and a half, you do. Um, so there seems to be a dose effect with that in the triglyceride levels. Um, the one potential concern when you look at other lipid classes, and again, a nice adult application where fish oil brings down your cholesterol. I don't know if we want to bring down total cholesterol, again, and a very important molecule to form myelin and membranes and other important things. So that's, there is shifts in other lipid classes that I didn't talk about. To answer your question and just kind of poke back because I would get poked back on that is um, why do you check triglyceride levels? You know, we don't know what the normal is. We do it in our unit, but we don't know what the normal is. And someone challenged me to figure out what it is in breast milk. I didn't do it personally. I looked at the literature and the range of healthy human infants on a bre all breast milk diet can be as high as 300. So I think we, you know, maybe don't check, <laughs> but um, I don't know what they mean. Yes, Adam. Thanks for that great talk. Um, I wanna go back to the recommendation of the uh, one gram per kilo per day yeah. of intralipid in infants that are anticipated to be on PN for one or three weeks. And, um, you know, uh, is that sufficient in order to prevent essential fatty acid deficiency? Are you monitoring for that? Yeah. So it is sufficient to prevent essential fatty acid deficiency. So good question there. Um, 
There was a study that was started, I think, with Dr. Cooter at Boston Children's looking at omegavin versus lipid restriction, and it stopped because lipid restriction worked. Um, so, you know, there was no, you know, it didn't, it didn't matter at the end of the day. Um, and then the other thing to think about is omegavin was never used, it uh, was never made or ever marketed to be a sole product. It was always marketed to be in conjunction with intralipid. So just a few other teaching points about that. But yes, a, a gram per kilo prevents your essential fatty acid deficiencies. Other Anything? All right, thanks well, for your attention. So do you typically start at one or one and a half or do you jump all the way? Yeah, no, we still do it, but we do it in less jumps, but we still start at one and a half. So sepsis, which is It's interesting because your resting state, if you look at all the nutrients, you have and all the